I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The whole point of our podcast is to teach people the way to think about investing, to turn off the noise, to turn off the hype, and to focus on what's in front of them, which is the numbers of the company that they're analysing, the decision around price, whether they want to buy it, and then the sentiment is the share price going up or down. G'day and welcome to the Equity Investor Journey, brought to you by the Australian Shareholders Association. My name's Phil Muscatello. Joining me today is arguably... One of Australia's best private investors, Tony Kynaston. Hi there, Tony. Hi, Phil. How are you? Oh, very well, thanks. Uh, really good to have you back. Now, Tony's a former senior executive of companies like Coles and Shell. He started investing in the stock market 30 years ago and developed a checklist methodology to become a professional investor. It's called Quality at Value. The average return on his portfolio over the last 20 years has been 19.5% per annum, double the ASX index. Then you met Cameron Riley. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, just one thing, Phil, that uh, in the year of COVID, the the uh, twenty year returns come down a bit. Mm-hmm. It's now sitting closer to eighteen percent than nineteen and a half. Oh well, compared to the market, we'll compare that to the market. Yeah, I, yeah, I like to think of it as double market. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you've become a podcast star now as I, well. I, I don't know about a star. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, I'm the last person who wants to seek the limelight at all. I've just been doing my own thing for a long time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I met Cameron um, at least a dozen years ago, and uh, we we used to FaceTime and Skype a lot. And he was doing a podcast back then. Well, he's doing the Napoleon podcast, but he was also doing one called Good Day World, which I found very interesting because he was interviewing lots of different people from around the world and really interesting subjects. And we started to discuss that, and, and it went from there. And a little while ago, might even have been just after the GFC when Cameron had a business putting out podcasts and that kind of unraveled like many other businesses in the GFC. And we started talking about writing a book. So since then, we've written a book together and we've um, I've produced a movie that he's, he's made. And they, they kind of come out of our discussions. But before we wrote that first book, it kind of evolved. I had in mind writing a book which was going to be called You Are Blind. And it was about the various ways that, that you're blind to the manipulations that, that happen to you as a member Mm. of society, both in finances about uh, how people can make use of some of the shortcomings of the, of the brain to market things to you um, and, and and push you down certain paths that you may not want to go if you're thinking logically all the way through politics, news, health, education. The idea was to have a chapter on each of those areas about, about how you have to really um, keep on your toes to navigate your way through it. And then the second half of the book was going to be about how, how you can navigate your way through by doing things like gathering your own research, independent news, um, medical advice, medical research, all that kind of thing. And one of the things that I guess loosely came out of that whole, that whole thing was financial freedom. 
and and managing your, your finances. And that's kind of where the, the podcast came together. In fact, it was Cameron's two sons who had their own podcast. Uh, they're, they're 20 at the moment, um, who got me on their, their show to, to do an interview. And then Cameron said, wait a minute, what's, you know, what's all this? Let's Let's uh, let's put a show together about personal investing, and, and it's been. I, I say all this because I like having a framework. I think people's lives need a framework that you operate in, and, and my framework has been about navigating your way through all these institutions, which can have corruptions and, and can be meddling in your life. To find your own freedoms, and financial freedoms is one of those. And uh, so the QAV podcast is available now, and this is basically going through your investment methodology and investment ideas. And this is um, called QAV, quality at value. Quality at value. They, I think yeah. they're, they're probably the two most important things if you're an investor. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to sleep at night when you invest, when, you, when you're buying a company. Uh, so that's the quality side of things. And you really don't want to pay full price for things if you can buy them at a discount. And that's the value side of things. And, and so putting those two things together, I think, sums up a good strategy for investing. Over the years, uh, I've tried different ways to do that and eventually started putting down those thoughts uh, in a checklist. And now the checklist has become very important to how I invest. And, and it's, a, it's a huge spreadsheet now, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it used to just be some notes on a, on a pad, yeah. <laughs> but um, we've, we've turned it into a spreadsheet to try and help listeners to our podcast uh, crunch the numbers uh, quickly and easily. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, and that's an important point too. We're numbers focused. Um, I'm looking at the facts. I'm looking at what companies have done, not what they're saying they're about to do or saying that their, their long-term plans are. So I'm someone who doesn't listen to the stories. If you want to, buy a story or read a story, buy a book. Um, I'd, I'd much rather just go straight to the numbers, um, read the annual report from the from the back cover to the front cover and uh, and leave all the storytelling for someone else. But uh, um, I, I take those numbers and put them into a checklist and, and derive at a price. And if the company meets our quality hurdles and is available at that price, then we put it in our buy list and we buy it. We rack and stack them and we, we buy from the, the highest score down. There's a lot of numbers involved in this checklist, and it is mm. quite a large checklist, mm. so we can't cover everything today. But what are some of the major areas that you look at in the checklist? Yeah, so on the, on the quality side, we're looking for things like, is the balance sheet growing over the last five years? Um, I use this, uh, a research tool called Stock Doctor, which gives me a financial health. Yeah, I was going to mention that a lot of the sure. listeners to this uh, program um, are already using Stock Doctor and are very f- familiar with it. Yeah, fantastic yeah. tool. And, and apart from the fact that it does gives, give us financial health ratings, mm. um, which is quicker than me going through and calculating them by hand from the annual reports, you can slice and dice all the numbers from all the companies on the ASX very, very quickly. You can filter them, you can download them to a spreadsheet, and you can do more manipulations there. And I think without access to that kind of tool, there are probably some other ones out there similar to Stock Doctor, but I like Stock Doctor. It's hard to do that kind of numbers-focused investing so um, you can do it but it's a lot slower especially around the time of company reporting season when more numbers are coming in every day that you need to crunch quickly so i'm able to um, you know quickly at the end of the day download all the companies that have reported into a spreadsheet and crunch those numbers and see if they meet the checklist quite quickly yeah and what, how, how often are you doing this is this something you're looking at every day or no so during the company reporting season, yes, but that might last for two weeks, twice a year. Like 
and probably not even then every day, I might go for a couple of days. Um, because oftentimes I'm already fully invested in the share market. I'm not trying to time the market. I'm trying to, to stay invested. And so getting new company reports and new data into my spreadsheet is almost academic for me because I don't have any room to add something to that, to, to my portfolio. But I do it anyway. Outside of those periods, I mean, some companies report September and March. And so there's a little bit of downloading around then. Uh, and sometimes things happen, like I might, for example, decide to sell a stock and then I want to buy another one. So I'll do a download and a complete reboot from there. But but outside of company reporting seasons, gee, once every two, three, four weeks would I do that. That's the dream, the dream spreadsheet, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. How have you been finding it now that you've got um, listeners and a lot more people looking at your checklist? Mm-hmm. How have you been finding it, um, explaining it to people? Do, do people get it or? Yeah, I think I think they do. Yeah, but it does require a lot of personal input. It's not a it's not a black box, is it? We haven't made it a black box deliberately because we're trying to get teach people the process. Um, so it does require some learning for for new people involved, especially if you're not someone who uses Excel, because our checklist is Excel based. So it does does require some onboarding to that. The thing I like about not making it a black box process. Um, is that we're getting to the stage where some of our listeners are now saying, well, what about this? And what about why aren't we adding that to the checklist? And they're doing their own thing. And I think that's really good because I'm not the fund of all knowledge and it's my checklist and it's, it, it evolves. And if other people come along and say, well, you know, I, I can see this stock is probably going to score well on a checklist for these reasons. I'm going to buy it now before it does score well. Then, then that's a valid a valid thing and I, I really enjoy that that kind of interaction with people asking those questions why are we doing that why don't we do this and I haven't done that and here's my results and it's becoming a bit of a community now which is good yeah that's a bit like um, in that episode with Steve Mab recently wasn't it where he was yeah. uh, talking about using uh, we're not talking about the checklist now we're talking about the value side of things mm-hmm. but um, he was buying a bit too early yes well he was trying as I said he was trying to yeah he was trying to predict which which shares would would take off using, mm-hmm. so they hadn't scored as well as they could have on the checklist. But he was forecasting that they would. So that, that was something to try. And and um, it's um, a little tweak, isn't it? It is, yeah. Made to to yeah. the system, yeah. And that's the whole idea of the checklist. Is you know, I want people to make those tweaks to it and 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 learn as they go. Um, we could certainly black box it, and I could give my recommendations every week for a fee. But the whole point of of this of our podcast is to teach people the way to think about investing, mm. to, to, to turn off the noise, to turn off the hype, to forget about the fear of missing out, all those things, and to focus on what's in front of them, which is the numbers of the company that they're analysing, a uh, decision around price, whether they want to buy it. And then we also have one last look at the sentiment, is the share price going up or down um, in a trend before we decide to buy. And you only look at ASX-listed companies, don't you? You're only investing in Australia. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Look, I think our checklist would work anywhere in the world, quite frankly, but I only do it for the ASX. Yeah. And part of that is that I like to buy what I know. Um, I can walk down the road and see if it's if David Jones is somewhere I want to buy from today, and that might influence a decision to research David Jones. I can I know the four major banks. I I know the people behind the scenes. I know who the good CEOs are and the bad CEOs are. And even though it doesn't necessarily come down as to the explicit decision on the checklist, it, it, it you soak it up as you invest. And I think that's important. Whereas if I was, say, investing in the UK, 
Um, I wouldn't know whether the Bank of Scotland was a bigger bank than the Bank of London. So could do it blind and just follow the numbers. But I think it's also nice to know a bit about, I mean, these are companies we're investing in, so a bit about that company and whether you like it or not. Yeah. So the quality side is um, what's happening in the spreadsheet. You're Mm -hmm. looking at, you're scoring everything and giving it a qualitative Mm -hmm. score. But then you use a kind of form of technical analysis to decide when to buy. Correct. Tell us about that. Yeah, so there's the quant side, which is all around the, the quality scores, but also the value scores. We work out, rather than trying to work out what the value of a company is, we have a cutoff. And if, if its valuation is less than a certain amount, then it goes on to our buy list. And the reason for that is that I think it's very hard to value companies down to the last dollar or the last cent. And uh, you know, there's, there's many different ways of doing it. Discounted cash flows, book value, underlying assets, fire sale breakup, all those kinds of things, I think, provide a heat map for valuation rather than a specific number. But, but we do arrive at what we think is a threshold that above this price, we're not interested, below this price, we're interested. And then we go to what you're talking about, which is we look at the, the sentiment in the market. And, and one of the things that happens if you're a value investor is you can get into value traps. So um, a company might look very cheap, but it's going backwards. And the reason why it's cheap is because you don't want to buy it, even though it might score well on the checklist and it might definitely score well on the value side of the checklist, you, you may not want to be a part of that future for that company and the, and the future for that company may not be that great. And so what we do is we look at um, very simply which way the, uh, the share price graph is going. And if I can say it in that simplest form, a good company share graph starts in the bottom left of the page and goes to the top right and a bad one starts in the top left of the page and goes to the bottom right. Now, they do zigzag around and there's a, a bit more finesse than that. But before we buy something, it's got to pass that last test. It's got to be, in the eyes of other investors, it's got to be a buy. And, and that's a three-point trend line? We call it the three-point trend yeah. line, yeah. And, and people can see that on the website. Uh, they can. We, the go into it we won't go into it no. now. But yeah. And it often does. Funnily enough, I mean, I've, I've simplified what, what we do. It can take a long time for people to get the hang of that as well. Yeah. Because, you know, share price graphs go up and down and zigzag and reverse and all those kinds of things so it does take people a bit of time to get that the hang of that but basically what we're saying is that shares are either going up or going down generally it's within a range Um, they won't always go up in a straight line they'll zigzag around that line how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Regress to the medium and median and all that kind of stuff. And so if it's going up, we're drawing a line across the, the bottom of all the, the zigzag lines. And if the share price drops below that extended line, then we, we sell it. The stock and the reverse happens if it's going down we're looking at the the peaks of that zigzag line and if there's a breakout that goes above that extended line then we're a buyer now that you're dealing with a lot of investors of, of all sorts of different skills and abilities what um, insights are you getting and what sort of misconceptions are you finding that people have about being in the market yeah it's interesting isn't it i think I think the one that got me motivated the most to, to do to talk about investing with people is is fees and commissions. My parents were invested with with a financial advisor, and quite frankly, they were just ripped off. You know, buying lots of managed funds um, when they only needed to buy one fund, so the the financial advisor got more commissions. Um, I think there's still a fair bit of that going on out there. Although, if can I just interrupt? There was wasn't there something in the financial review this morning about was it $360 billion has been transferred from people's super into fund managers' pockets? That's right, banks yeah. and fund managers, yeah. Mm. I think it was even more than that over the last 20 years. Since I think it was since compulsory superannuation came in, that was the amount of fees taken out. And that's also taking into account that if you're in an industry fund, you're paying low fees. Mm. Um, but, but, you know, there's still a heck of a lot of drain going on in the market. So that's the first thing. Please be aware of the fees you're paying and, and, and even the secret commissions that get paid as well. Um, that's the first thing. And then you sort of go through a litany of um, all of the things that the brain has been wired to do over time to help us evolutionarily but which you have to be aware of if you're an investor. So things like fear of missing out. I mean, it suited us as we were evolving as people that if, if the herd went that way, you should go with the herd, right, for protection. But that's not always the case if you're a share market investor. And so there's a lot of, um, a lot of hype going on, a lot of people following the herd at the moment. Likewise, there's some concepts in, in financial, uh, I guess, theory, which I'm not a subscriber to, things like um, rebalancing your portfolio, why on earth would you want to sell down your best share investment so that you can buy back into your worst? That doesn't make any sense to me. I know it's got. I know what the the arguments are behind it, but I'd rather hang on to my best share investment and and sell it when I want to sell it, rather than at the end of the quarter or the end of the half or the end of the year. Um, I'm also not a fan of diversification, and uh, so people who think that they're getting uh, less risk by buying overseas shares as well as Australian shares or buying commodities or, or commercial real estate or all those kinds of things. Um, all, I could, all I can say is when the GFC hit, they all went down. So you're not necessarily getting any less risk than buying into the one asset class like Australian shares, for example, or, or your own house. I think they're tried and true long-term uh, accumulators of value. And I don't think there's any, any need to necessarily get fancy about trying to reduce your risk. I think, you, as I said before, you need a framework for investing and that can allow you to sleep at night if you're following your framework rather than just trying to catch the next shooting star. Um, so, so all those kinds of things um, are what I come across. Like I said, I, I, and I've been surprised even before uh, I started doing the podcast. You know, I worked with people 
um, who were managing big companies who had no idea about whether the company was a good investment or not. And you could see that because they would be granted options every year and they would sell them um, as soon as they got them and take a holiday or buy a car or whatever. And I used to say, you're not giving away you know, 50000 You're not getting $50,000 here. You're giving away $500,000 if you wait five years. So, you know, they just didn't have any idea of that. So I think people's knowledge of financial analysis and what makes a good investment has, has always surprised me. Um, it's not taught in schools. I don't know how people find out about it. For me, it was, you know, I had to go out and do my own research and read lots of books um, so I, I think there's, you know, quite possibly a bit of a we're, we're being our kids are being let down, I think, by by our education system sometimes and not teaching us very simple metrics about investing, the you know, compound growth and how that works. What what is a quality company? What isn't a quality company? Um, so a little bit of behavioral economics, you know, how, how your brain can fool you with, with some of these things. And so it's it's left to institutions like the Australian Shareholders Association to try and educate people along those lines. That's pretty controversial, saying that uh, diversification is not something that you should be seeking. It's it's something that everyone says you don't want to have all your eggs in the one basket. You should be across different asset classes as well, not just the share market. You don't agree with that at all? Huh? No, I don't. No, no. Um, it it doesn't it doesn't help de-risk to to buy across different asset classes because, as I say, they they can all go down during a crisis. Even bonds. Even bonds. Mm-hmm. I mean, bonds came back the quickest after the GFC, and if you're nimble enough to move out of everything else and put your money in bonds, you did well. Yep. But that doesn't follow the the theory of keeping 10% in bonds or whatever. So that part of the asset of your asset allocation worked well, but that was only a 10% allocation of it. Everything else went backwards and it didn't make up for it. So um, no, not, not, not just bonds. Let me put it to you this way. You probably know a lot about one particular asset class and and I'm going to guess it's your own house. It's it's residential property. There might be something else you know a lot about because of the industries you've worked in in the past. And if you stuck to investing in those industries, you'd probably do really well. Why would you want to go out and buy in an asset class you know nothing about? You don't know what the risks are in that asset class, whether it's commercial property or whether it's gold or or whatever. Um, to me, that doesn't de-risk your portfolio. It increases the risk in your portfolio. And Buffett said it this way. He said that um, concentration doesn't just concentrate your portfolio. It concentrates your mind. You have to think really hard about about an investment if, if it's the only one you're going to make. Like I'm sure you, you didn't just walk down the street and buy this house. You, you did lots of research around. You had a look at a lot of op- open for inspections, all that kind of thing that, that goes on. But if I said to you, no, don't, don't do that, Phil. Take your money and put some in commercial property and buy this ETF on gold and buy this ETF for international shares and, and you, you're risk-free and you'll be set for the rest of your life. I don't know. I think you probably did better out of uh, about, you know, buying the house you bought and doing your homework beforehand and concentrating your investments in that. So the Australian Shareholders Association, <laughs> yes. we need to welcome you as a member. <laughs> We're all very pleased to have you on board. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you for the welcome. And, and thanks to Steve Mab for uh, putting me onto it. I was actually... No, he's strong arm. He's strong arm. <laughs> didn't he? No, he's a good salesperson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he, um, I was actually a member of the ASA probably 20 odd years ago. I can't remember what, what was going on, but there was, I think from memory, some kind of corporate collapse or some kind of... Uh, blow up in the corporate world and the ASA was recruiting members to help fight uh, what was going on or to try and recover um, some some value for investors out of the collapse. 
I think it might have been HIH, but I, I, I could be wrong. And I, you know, I thought sort of motivated enough to get in there and give them some money and, and you know, support them for a while. But I didn't stay with them after that. And I've been kind of pleasantly surprised now I've come back to it because I think, I think there's a lot of good educational work that's being done by the ASA now to try and help people understand what's out there in the market. And, and to me, the financial market is a bit like the medical market. If I go to my doctor and I say, you know, I've got a sore throat, I'll probably get told I've got some kind of immune or monococcal disease that requires amoxifelin for, you know, three weeks. And, it's, and when I ask how I got it, they'll say it's idiopathic, which means they don't know. So there's a lot of, and I'm not trying to pick on the medical profession, they, they do a good job, but there's a lot of jargon that distances the expert from the end user. And the same thing goes on with the with the financial world. So I think education is really important. So people can, can, can start to think about where they want to concentrate their time and effort um, with their investments. So I think that's great. I think um, from what Steve's been saying, the, the sort of focus on going and monitoring AGMs and, and, and boards is, is really good too. From the handful of, small handful of, ch- of chair people I know I've listed ASX companies, they do I mean it's it's probably just a trap of doing the easiest thing, but they do tend to focus on the large institutional investors. If they have a big decision to make, they'll they'll canvas them, um, and in some cases, that doesn't even make up half of the shareholder base. And so the retail shareholder goes along for the ride, even if they don't agree with that um, decision. So I think if the ASA can can become um, a strong, I'm going to call it influencer. An interesting interesting point. I have a friend who runs a, um, a tech company and uh, I started sending him some research from some of the people I follow in that space not that I'm a tech investor but I do subscribe um, to different things and he was like wow this this is really good analysis and and I said well you know this person's probably got a couple of thousand people listening to what they say and 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 there's a large number of those are your investors it's like oh I didn't realize that so you know um, I think there's a lot of influences out there to the um, smaller shareholders which which uh, boards could um, do well to listen closer to. And I think that the ASA can, can be one of those influences. Yeah, provide a voice to um, smaller investors. Yeah. At least it's not going to be necessarily going to sway a board because, like you say, there's much larger forces. But if enough, there are enough people voting and putting their vote in a certain direction, they do have to sit up and listen. Well, that's right, especially with the, the two strikes rule these days where... Hmm where uh, you can cause a board spill by voting against the, the remuneration report two years in a row. Um, and if you get, I think it's 25% of the votes against that report um, in the second year, it leads to a spill. So there is some ammunition. I'm not saying that the ASA should go out there and hostilely attack boards. Um, but you look at the work that, say, someone like Stephen Maine's doing on, on capital raisings and how they tend to favour the institutional investor over the retail investor. At some stage... Uh, there'll be someone who says, listen, you big companies, uh, unless you rectify that imbalance, we're going to tell all of our members and all of our listeners to sell their shares and, and move somewhere else. Now, but the company might be happy with that, but the share price will go down. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, there is a, I think there's a role for advocacy. I, look, I don't think retail shareholders get you know, the short end of the pineapple too much. So um, I think the boards do a pretty good job generally but there from time to time there'll be problems and that's that's it's good to have a um a bit of muscle when you go in and, and, and try and rectify those problems i'm a bit old school I, you know i 
um, if I don't like the board, I'll sell the share. So mm. um, I'm not going to stick around and try and influence them. And I couldn't because I don't have enough of a shareholding base. But I think I'd been a top 10 shareholder in the company once. <laughs> appeared in the annual report yeah. that I know of. There could have been some other ones too. But um, it didn't didn't interest me at all going and sitting on a board or anything like that to, to help run the company. Yep. Been there, done that. I'd just rather be a passive investor. <laughs> Go and play golf. <laughs> so quality of value. Um, how can people find out more? Yeah, well, Google us. Uh, we have a Facebook group and we have a podcast that comes out every week. We've now been doing it for 18 months. So if anyone wants to go and have a listen, start at the start because that tells my story and tells about how the checklist was put together and how to use it and the things we look at. These days, we tend to go more into what's happened with the latest uh, company reports, for example, and which companies are, that I'm focusing on. Uh, I, I do publish a journal of, of, of my activity. So um, if I'm going to sell something, I'll give people notice so they can decide for themselves. If I'm going to buy something, I'll give people notice. If I've run some downloads and found these things, I'll put it in the stock journal as well. But it's all we're all about trying to teach people how to think for themselves and to get, as I said before, a framework to become confident and comfortable investors of their own their own money and if we can get double market going forward then that's going to give them financial freedom at some stage in their life i can't make people rich overnight but i can make them rich in the long term and when i say rich i mean comfortable enough to have some freedom in their lives that they can make some good decisions well tony thank you very much for joining the association and welcome to the association and thanks for coming along and chatting today good thanks for the invite phil it's uh, it's, it's always great to come over here and talk to you This podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice as we don't know your personal financial situation, so you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.